Thank you for coming along uh, to the workshop. Uh, the, the topic I was given for was practical tips and lessons learned growing from 100 uh, to 300. So um, I thought what I'd just quickly do is give you a, a snapshot of church so you can kind of get it in your mind's eye, um, what's happening there, uh, share with you a few things that I wish someone had told me uh, three and a half years ago before we planted. And then um, I thought I'd just share some, uh, I guess, practical tips. And I tried to pick a... Um, sort of a non-standard selection because sometimes you go to these things and you get the first 40 minutes on keeping the gospel central and you probably didn't drive all the way here to Brisbane to, to hear it. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, so just quickly on me, um, I became a Christian overseas when I was backpacking at 21, travelled around for about another 18 months, visited lots of churches. One week it was a rock concert, the next week someone was up the front wearing a dress and I didn't really understand. Um, so I travelled around a lot, never had a home church, came back to study in Adelaide, uh, wanted to find uh, a good church. I had a few recommended to me, uh, Holy Trinity Church, which I just described before, was one of them, which was right next to our university. Went along and thought, oh, wow, they actually open the Bible and teach it, and it kind of makes sense and has something to say to my life, which for that random snapshot of 18 months of different churches in you know, Africa and America and UK and things like that wasn't my experience, so I, I couldn't get enough. Uh, of it and um, so we got involved in youth ministry and different things over the years and started getting tapped on the shoulder to think about ministry I had lots of good reasons why I thought I shouldn't um, kept saying no every 18 months long story short finally God made it clear to us we should head off to Bible college but I said to my boss happy to go to Bible college now but don't talk to me about church planning I'm not interested um, and then uh, during my second and third year at Bible college I was asked to be on a core team as a student minister with a church plant going out to the northern suburbs of Adelaide, in the northeast. And uh, yeah, I just found it a really invigorating thing seeing people connecting into church for the first time, people becoming Christians and starting something from scratch. And so I kind of got a bit of a, a heart for it. And then I was employed back at Holy Trinity, sort of mothership, old sandstone church in the middle of town. They said, hang around for five or six years, learn how to be a pastor, and then start thinking about church planting. I thought, oh, okay, I can probably manage that. And then about 10 months into it, we lost one of our big venues uh, next door that we rented for one of the five services we had on a Sunday. So we had to go back to four. We weren't all going to fit. They said, we need to plant a church in a hurry. Uh, Matt, you're the only person who's been involved in a church plant here on the staff team while at Bible College. So it's going to be you, and we need to get it sorted out in the next year. And um, Yeah, so we um, had a quick look around Adelaide, saw where our people were coming from, there was a really super high concentration of people driving into morning church from where we are, just sort of 15 minutes south of the city, uh, so we planted there and um, yeah, three and a half years later, uh, here we are, so it's kind of uh, unlikely church planners. In the preparation to that, I went to Multiply, before it was called Multiply, it was called In the Shoot, um, back then, terrible name, I'm really glad they changed it, um, uh, but I heard a talk by a guy called uh, Tim Sims. And I won't go on about the talk, but it was a really good talk. Changed my ministry life. It's still on the Geneva Push website. If you search for Tim Sims, it's something really boring tale about statistics and things, but brilliant talk. Um, fantastic. And his big thing is churches make it far too complicated. Your job is to make more and better disciples of Jesus, and that should be about the length of your uh, strategy vision statement. There's a number of key tasks that go with doing that. You should just have a sheet that puts those tasks on there, and at the start of the week you write some names on it and do it kind of thing. So um, not that we've done that wholeheartedly, but I, I certainly picked up on the, okay, that's what we're doing. We're evangelising and trying to grow Christians to maturity. And if you listen to the conference, we've all got 15 different ways of saying the same thing, but that's essentially uh, what ministry is. 
So because we were going to kicked out of the city space problems, we had a very unusual set of circumstances where we had uh, about 120 on the core team, uh, which, you know, a quarter of people away on a Sunday, it's about 90 uh, at a Sunday service. That's big. It was the biggest core team ever sent out um, from Trinity City uh, before. And you can see on the graph there, which in black and white, it, it, you don't really need to know the key. The, the first year is the lowest year and the second year is the next one up. And um, Actually, it would be helpful. Could you just say... Going across on the top here. Yeah. We, if I just put, if we just put down A, B, C, D, E. Yeah, and sure. Then, and then can you just tell us from the bottom to the top, we'll the same ones up. Yeah, sure. So um, uh, the first one there, 2016, that is the second to top. The, the line that starts at 260 there and then dips below the one next to it. Okay, so that's that's. Uh, that's oh. A. <laughs> yep. So that is our four-week average. So it's it kind of smoothing because. The, the next line that's kind of overlaid a posset, which is the last one there, 2016 attendance, that is that next line that keeps intersecting it. So you can see that one going up, down, up, mm. down, you know, long weekend, school holidays, so e. everyone's back. Yeah, that's E, that last one. Uh, the B one there is the one that starts just above 170. Uh, the C one there is the one that starts about 130. And the D one, the 2013, is that very bottom line that starts a few months in because we launched at the end of February. Uh, so... so um, yeah, uh, so we had about 90 on attendance for our trial services, uh, jumped to about 130 after our public launch, you know, all family and friends and newcomers come along and then half of them disappeared the next week because uh, they were just there for the launch and we sort of reset about that uh, 130 number. Uh, building comfortably full, sort of the 80% rule, about 180 and uh, you can do 220 at a real squeeze. Uh, in, um, in October 2014 we went from one 10am service to two uh, services, 9am and 10.30. Uh, we always find, in, usually in February, you get some just random spike day where everyone shows up and a few visitors come as well, and you get a window into what life would look like if you were a bigger church. Um, so we had one of those, sort of around about our first birthday, we had about 205 people at church, and it felt jam-packed, and we thought, oh no, what are we going to do? We've got a, a full church, and then of course things drop off a little bit from there, but it got us thinking that we need to, there's no point hitting this point next year or even the sort of September, October is kind of our next hump as you can see on the graph there, you know, spring, everyone's positive and out again and things like that. We thought there's no point hitting our next hump with no extra capacity. So we thought we've got six months to work out something and what the something was was going to two services. So we have a very all age, I'll try and talk louder because of the, uh, the, the sound. So I'm not yelling at you, but I'm just hoping you can hear. Um, the, um, we have a very all-age gathering. It's the most probably all-age of our uh, church uh, plants. We've got eight church plants in the network now. Uh, partly because my time spent at the mothership was with the two oldest congregations. And uh, having planted a church before where just a couple of older couples came, the, uh, obviously in prayer. The, um, I sort of thought these older couples are absolute gold and all the people in the city thought no we don't go church planting we're the prayers and the payers of church planting and I tried to convince them no no you, you, you'll love church planting and you'll be such value to the church um, so we had quite a large so we've got a very all age gathering so when we got full and we said okay we're thinking about starting a second service everyone said whoa no we love what we're doing um, the last thing we want is like the old person service and the family service so we sort of thought, okay, I get that. Um, so we decided we'd run the exact same service um, just twice and try and manage it so that we had a, a cross-age range in both services and we were trying to get roughly the same size 
service and things as well, which meant um, we had to do two lots of kids' ministry. So kids' ministry was already a big thing. That was the big logistical, how in the world is this ever going to happen that we could run, you know, creche, preschool, reception year two, three to sixes, all that kind of stuff at both services. Um, so... Um, we sort of surveyed everyone and sort of said, well, we're going to do two services. Which one's your preference? Do you hold that very strongly or are you kind of flexible about it? Um, so we had about 20% of the church who were quite strong. I definitely want to go to 9 or 10.30. But really a large group of people who said, well, I prefer 9, but if you need me to go to 10.30, I'm happy to do that. Um, so we tried to manage it as best we can to have two uh, all-age services at around the same size. But when we started, like one... One was sort of like 80, the 9 o'clock service, and the other one was sort of 110, 120. So um, one service felt, I reckon in our hall, the vibe kind of point where it feels like you've come to something is about 130. So it had one service that kind of felt like it had a bit of vibe, and the other one sort of felt like the poor cousin uh, a little bit. Um, so we thought, right, how are we going to create community at 9 and help set them up for a win? So we thought, okay, we'll try and do breakfast before 9, so we'll, you know, we'll blaze off every time... You know, we want to pump nine o'clock. We'll do bacon and egg muffins on the uh, barbecue outside, and on a standard week, we just have you know, um, uh, yeah, fruit toast and crumpets and things like that, just to give them some time to be community. Because at, in the crossover, we only get some uh, you know twenty minutes on a good day crossover, fifteen on average, ten sometimes. Um, you've got one service coming out, one service coming in, and people everywhere. It's a bit crazy. So that really helped nine. Interestingly, the last four weeks, nine has been the bigger of the services. So that's been a bit above 150, and um, 1030 has been a bit below. And the thing was, because we were encouraging people to move to nine, what happened was that the kind of more committed on board mature families thought, we'll do this for the gospel, absolutely. So we kind of ended up with one service that... um, uh, had a higher sort of core ownership of it and one a bit more fringy, which, I mean, both are great, but they have different sort of temperaments. So I'm, I'm at least 30% funnier at 9 o'clock um, than I am at 10.30. Like the same joke, just, you know, crickets at 10.30. Uh, I should remember this is online. I love you, 10.30. Um, but it's just a different, there's a different vibe uh, to both our services. But by God's grace, they've both grown and they've both sort of grown in their sense of their own community uh, since then. All right, um, lessons learned, what I wish um, someone had told me. Uh, I think activating uh, a de-church person um, so they're a producer of ministry, not just a consumer of ministry, um, is a much longer road than with a new convert. It's harder, it's less fun, um, but it's still super important. So I was just doing a a coaching session in the workshop too, and I said said around about 60% of our growth has come from um, sort of de-church people who, oh, I'm a Christian, but I just go to church three times a year and your church has got better music and coffee, so we'll just make you our new church that we come to um, sort of three times a year. Or um, people who just stopped going to church five, 10, 15 years ago, usually because they stopped teaching the Bible or there was a big you know, scandal and split the church or something like that. And, um, but people coming back, a fresh start in a new sort of local community facility we're in an RSL, uh, people associate the Trinity kind of brand for want of a better name in Adelaide with strong Bible teaching and sort of um, things, so people go, oh I went to Trinity back in the 70s and you know, I've been away from church in a while and now I'm back uh, which is fantastic, it's, it's a really wonderful ministry but when someone's newly converted and we've um, praise God we've had a number of those um, lately um, people are like, yeah, of course I get church planning, and yeah, I want to go on the kids' roster, and of course I'm giving and you're planning another church. Fantastic! I'll be on the on the core team. Um, 
that's a much shorter journey than the person who obviously has a, a much lower view of church and I think you'd have to argue in 99 point whatever percent of the cases a much lower view of the gospel um, because you, you can't have a high view of Jesus and what he's done for us and go to church three times a year um, so but those people well you know why would I go to a life course because I'm a, I'm a Christian like I don't need you to tell me the basics when in many cases you do so it's, uh, as I, I mentioned it in passing last night up front in the thing but there's so much literature on how to evangelise non-church people and connect with atheists and apologetically be good and run courses that people like coming along to, but there's almost no literature or ideas or workshops on how to activate a de-church person. Because that's, statistically, that's half of Australia kind of went to a youth group at some point, think, oh, yeah, I like God, I, I love coming to church where you tell me it's all by grace that we're saved and if I trust in Jesus, I'll go to heaven. Beautiful, I'm going to heaven. Lock that box in and, you know, see you again in four months. Um, so, we, we, all, we all are looking forward to your book when it comes Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. But, but it would be worthwhile someone doing something on it because, it, as I said, it just feels like we've been making it up as we go and God's been very kind. But now, I wish someone had told me that. What about sub-church people? So mm. what we get, mm. obviously Perth, the dots are smaller and they're further apart for our evangelical yep. Bible teaching. And so there's a few implosions of churches that haven't done Bible teaching. Yep. And so we get an influx of them. So there have been regular people at church yeah. and they're coming to you mm. and suddenly they're going, oh, no one's ever given me the big framework stuff. Yeah, no one's ever done biblical theology. Yeah. yeah, we do. Um, um, partly, we get a certain... So there's a lot of um, people floating around in that category, and I'm really not trying to be disrespectful, that have really strong on a number of key issues, whether it's infant baptism or... Um, uh, there's uh, often in that sort of group that kind of moves around because they're dissatisfied with their other church. They usually feel quite strongly about a number of things. Um, I think we don't get as many at our church, partly because we have a bar and pokies in there. It's kind of a bit... Anyone who's slightly legalistic is never going to feel comfortable coming in um, to our church. So um, we don't get heaps of that. Do you but use the bar and pokies during? <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't. They're all kind of locked up and the shutters are down over the bar. And, and the left hand of fellowship. Uh, <laughs> but we'll often do like training events on Sunday afternoon or we'll do a barbecue and the bar will be open and uh, things like that uh, as well. It's a great facility and it's been evangelistically it's been wonderful because it's a very um, RSLs they're not like the East Coast RSLs. They haven't been redeveloped and run by mega corporations. This is still a volunteer group of old people who um, who really love the community, have a high sense of service to the community. They've been the most wonderful landlords that I think any church plant um, could ever have. Um, they've been great. So it, it's kind of like walking into a town hall 30 years ago in Australia. You know, the the, the food is hearty and all deep fried and you know uh, all those uh, kind of things. But um, yeah, it's good. So we don't get heaps of that. And uh, But I think one of the, the... We get a little, and, and so do other churches. I think one of the big struggles at that point is to maintain a very strong sense of what the dominant culture is. So if the dominant culture in the church is that you'll go out onto the veranda afterwards and whinge about how long the sermon was, um, it's very easy for people to get caught up in that. But if people are you know, positive and they love seeing each other and they love being here, which I, I think we've been really blessed by having a very positive and encouraging culture so that when people come in it really strikes them. People will say I've never been to a church that's so welcoming or, or I've never been to a church where everyone doesn't go and um, get stuck into the sermon for the next 20 minutes after and things uh, like that which are kind of the, the drifting group. So in the network we have experienced that a bit and I think um, there's kind of a danger, you know you can add 50 people to your church because of a church implosion and what we've seen a few times is that 
you know, disgruntled at another church, come to your church, everything's great for a while, and then start to get disgruntled there, and then that same group moves on and um, a little while, and you've gone to two services, you need to go back to one and things. So just really um, trying to sound a note of caution on looking at a, a graph that is fueled by church implosions can be a very um, sort of fickle and dangerous thing to plan around because you want to be evangelising and welcoming and connecting with the community. That's a very different uh, type of growth. So, um, yes? So, um, it struck me when you were talking about de-church people yesterday mm. that in, in a sense, I know it's a standard term in the literature, but mm. I, I wonder if sometimes it's a bit of a broken, like it's a term that prevents us from making progress on mm. the category because it has subcategories, it seems to me, yeah, like, sure. at, at least in terms of um, well, two, two major subcategories. One is the person who actually really does have the gospel, but for yep. whatever reason, they are crummy at getting to church. They yeah. let dumb stuff get in the way. Yeah, that's Not true. because they don't love Jesus. Yep. I, I'm going to treat them very differently yeah. than the person that you've kind of described in, yeah, sure. in that caricature. Yep. And, and I feel like as, as long as we talk about them both in, in the one bucket, yep. It means I'm, I try a thing that's going to help that person, yeah, and it right. breaks that person, yep. and, and sends them back out. Mm. You know, or I try and trick, you know what I mean? Or yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's a, a very good clarification and, and word of caution, actually, because I think it is. Yeah, and I never use that term sort of publicly or anything like that. It's more just trying to uh, speak in a broad category people understand. But I think that's exactly right. There's all sorts of reasons people are dechurched, and um, yeah, I, I think the predominant people that come to us are people who you know, did have a great period of growth in life and good Bible teaching and things like that. And often it's been the wheels fall off at church. They've got a new pastor who just stops preaching and thinks, oh, no, instead of the sermon, we'll just turn around and talk to each other and do church, um, um, that kind of thing. And, and people have a, a loss. And then when they come and sit under word and prayer ministry again, they can get flamed back in uh, to life again. So, which is quick, yeah, that, yeah, that can be quick. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll just move on on points. Um, uh, there's a lot of talk around structure around conferences like this. Long story short, I became a real roadblock for ministry around about the 180 mark. People would come and say, well, um, you know, I've got this great idea for an evangelistic kids thing to do at Christmas. And I'd think, oh, I'm so flat out preparing the sermon. I've got to speak to the music people. I've got to you know, speak to the leadership team. And, um, you just feel like everything's running through you. So last year, there's lots of different ways to do it. The way we tried to respond to it was um, uh, setting up an evangelism team first up, a welcoming integration team, and a pastoral care team. So now when that conversation happens, I think, that's great, Jack, I really like that idea. Go and speak to the evangelism team. It's their job and their spec on what they have to do when there's newcomers around church that I'm worried I haven't seen for a while. I just speak to the, you know, the welcoming team, they follow them up. And it's not rocket science, but... <laughs> given it's such a, a common thing that happens in ministry and I'm usually really reasonably well planned um, it's kind of amazing that we've fell straight into that very dumb and obvious trap you feel like you've you know there's a big trap in the middle of the path and you've just walked into it without even trying to step around it um, uh, another thing, uh, when we first launched, coming from a fairly sort of strong Bible teaching church, that core group of 120 were pretty tight theologically, had a high, you know, they've consciously left a church that they love to come and do something harder for the gospel. Um, a few years later, the role's a bit over sort of 400 now, and there's just, there's non-Christians coming regularly, which is great, there's new Christians, there's lots of de-church people of all flavours there and different backgrounds and denominations and it's it's actually really hard to communicate about anything in a way that's not misunderstood by one of those 
categories. So you just can't assume the same amount when you're preaching uh, theologically. Uh, you know, you make an announcement about money and, you know, the, the new Christians suddenly feel guilty that they're not giving enough and the non-Christians think this is outrageous and all the D-Church people think, oh, I remember how they talked about money in my last church and launch off to um, things about that. It's um, actually really hard. So have to think very uh, clearly about that. Um, another thing we've found too, that reorganising to respond to growth often facilitates new growth really quickly. So we sort of thought... Um, our reception to Year 2's group was having about 12 kids in it. We sort of thought, that's a big group of reception to Year 2's. We need to have two groups. So we you know, spent a bit of time you know, recruiting people. First week we did it, we had 20 out of 2's people there. Um, and now that, and so we reorganised again a few months later, and you know, those 30 kids has now gone to a, sort of 120. We just did another reorganisation um, at the start of February this year, and kids' numbers are up another 20. It's already starting to, to feel for things. So it's kind of a constant... You know, tension to be managed is not a problem to be solved. You, you've just got to keep kind of working on things. But praise God that, I mean, you see that happening in Acts. You know, there's people, uh, you know, the apostles are getting distracted from word and prayer ministry. They reorganise things and the whole stack more people become Christian. Um, that often you respond to previous growth, often facilitates future growth really well as well if it's done uh, well. And, um, I also think that the main job of the leadership team is to sift through 10 things we could do and choose one or two things that we are going to do. Like often when you get groups thinking about stuff and brainstorming, you come up with 50 ideas. A lot of people feel really overwhelmed and think, oh, wouldn't they all be fantastic? You know, feel a great sense of guilt and we can't even do 10 of them properly. Um, You know, it's really going, these are great ideas, but here's, instead of spending all our time talking about all these things we could do, let's just pick two things we are going to do. And chances are you'll pull one of them off well and the other one will be a bit of a flop or something like that. But yes? Can I ask what, what constitutes your leadership team? Yeah, um, so uh, we have a structure because we're a network of eight churches and they're working out policy documents and constitutions and things for us. We have uh, the congregation votes for two people. I get to pick two people. I'm on the team, so there's five. And then those five can choose another two if they want to. Um, for uh, any period of time and you're generally on for two years and now it's in a rolling thing where a couple of people come off a couple of people stay on uh, through the yes we do yeah we explicitly state um, this is not an eldership uh, group because again you've got Baptist Church of Christ people going oh elders you know you know um, Holy Trinity's male only preaching so people can be surprised by that we sort of yeah, anyway, that, uh, yes, it is mixed. So, And we try and... My view of complementarianism is that um, men and women both have unique gifts by God, and if you don't have one there, you're actually missing something as a leadership team or a staff team or things like that. I'm not saying... Um, yeah, anyway, we won't go into that whole debate, but, um, yeah, I think that's really important. We've tried to reflect that on our leadership team as well. So it's pretty much been 50-50 guys and, and girls. <coughs> this is... Um, a more general question mm. um, but it's pertinent to us because we're beginning to build as a church right now mm. about possibly not one to two congregations yes. the big thing for us is trigger points yep. and particularly on church attendance on Sundays, yeah. like where's the correct point yeah. to start doing it You know, often we think, okay well the 80% rule yep. when you're at 80% full that's when you've got to do it yep. we're not at 80% full yet yep. although if everyone on our roll turned up yeah we'd be like 97 percent full mm. um what was it like for you guys Did, what was the trigger point for you to go i know there's others mm. uh, there's no point splitting if yep. your leadership's too thin to cover them mm. what, 
Talk, talk a bit through the, the multiplication into two congregations process. Sure. So we had the scary day in February, vision of future church being full uh, kind of thing. So we, we, we thought, okay, there's those humps in the year, which for us, I don't know if it's a common thing, it's February, March, October, November. Um, so if, if, we, if we hit those humps with that capacity. So we sort of thought, right, we could, we could just turn around and multiply it sort of tomorrow but you know there's a grieving process <coughs> to go through and we're in winter so mm-hmm. we sort of thought winter is probably not the best time to try and launch something with energy so we wanted to give ourselves the best shot with energy so we thought either we could go sort of October um, but then we were sort of thinking well you know January February you know December January is usually pretty low um, you know you're launching it and then uh, so we thought we could go February March as well um, so we um, sort of thought, well, if we go October, that gives us two bites at the cherry. We can try and put as much energy behind going to two services and positivity and later box drop the neighbourhood again. You know, I think we said, come and find out why Jesus loves his church enough to keep, you know, one became two or, you know, something like that. Um, so we tried to put as much energy in as possible. And we thought, yeah, we'll have a bit of a, you know, December, January, it could feel a bit like a flop, but we thought we'll have two bites at the cherry and we'll get all the stuff sorted out because February which you can see each year is a big jump up um, mm-hmm. moment for us we thought we'll have everything in place by that point so we, we didn't really pick a sort of a trigger point where there's full because we kind of had that experience and started talking about it and then publicly and doing surveys and it <coughs> felt like a pretty um, bold and a bit scary thing to be talking about in the middle of winter when you have 150 people along at church mm-hmm. and there's plenty of room there mm-hmm. to be sort of saying well in October huh, uh, we're going to be going to two services and doing two lots of kids it, it felt very scary so it was more on conviction on when would be the best time energy wise and, and you can see um, that the first time that second line from the bottom pops above 200 there was just after we launched so even in the anticipation of that we're talking to people and mm-hmm. what we found it did a lot of those sort of more fringy people started sort of saying who walked in and thought everything seems quite smoothly run I'm not needed here suddenly heard the call we need 30 new people in kids ministry and we want more people involved in music so because they've got to play both services but less often and all that kind of stuff so it really was another connecting point and people went from the once in six times at church to four out of five times and, and things like that so not that we picked up heaps of new people, but that was really activating and bringing in uh, sort of the fringe again. So as we prepare to plant, I would expect that, hopefully, okay. God willing, to happen again. So it's more on timeline for energy and conviction that we need to do it rather than kind of waiting to a point. Because if we were waiting to a point, we never would have been talking about it through that winter of, you know, second church planting winter and the winter of discontent. <coughs> All right, flip over the page. I'll run you through a few things and then we can just... Um, uh, have some uh, questions and things. So just double checking my time. Well, dinner's five fifty. We won't go that long. We can have a bit of a break uh, before dinner if you like. But or we can have some more informal chat. Um, I thought, as I said, I thought I'd put a, a few sort of non-standard things to talk about um, here. Uh, so, um, and the two that I really want to focus on, um, we've had a very uh, observing that church planning often has very sort of open front doors you're trying to welcome in stacks of people and you're often doing a good job welcoming people in like that and there's a small number of people doing a whole bunch of stuff and they get burnt out and sort of head out the back door crawling away church planning was too much for me i'm going back to mother church or a different church and then you put another small group of people into them you burn them out and um, it can be a bit of a open front door but an open back door as well to church uh, we sort of thought we really want to close the back door and look after our households well <coughs> And, it, and it's more than just kind of a mantra, it's, it's more of a theological conviction that as a pastor and, and staff team, 
it's my job to look after every household in our church and it's Jesus' job to provide everything we need for ministry um, so that I shouldn't resort to sort of arm twisting or you know revving up the troops and doing things that will harm people through unsustainability. So we've sort of said, well, we've kept communicating, we want to care for your household well and and there is no picture of what a committed member of this church looks like um, because it's different for every household. If you've got sick parents or some of you are struggling with depression or your job's gone crazy because you're on a, you know, finishing a, a big contract for six months or uh, you've just had new kids, there's, there's, a, there's a million things that make every different household unique in what being committed to church looks like for them. So we said, we want to know. And, um, and so the way, we, the way we tried to express that was centralising all of our rostering. I know rostering sounds a little bit boring, but um, I think this is really um, uh, neat the way God's used this. Is So we, we've, our admin team we count as very crucial members of our pastoral staff. So our admin team's here. We didn't leave them home answering phones because they're um, a crucial part of our staff team. And they're kind of charged with trying to look after and, um, and know through things that we pass on about households. So some households will say, well, when my husband's playing the guitar up front of music, I want to be on crash so that... And the other weeks we can come to church together. Another household might say, no, 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 we can't possibly be on the same thing on a Sunday. Um, and then there's all the other sort of pastoral things that you know uh, about a house. So we centralised all of it. So um, we don't have a music team running the music roster and a welcoming team and things like that. It's all run centrally with the goal of um, looking after every household and knowing um, those things about each other. And we, we also something we also try to articulate is that we're... Um, I think you can either build systems, as boring as they can be sometimes, you can either build them on trust or suspicion. So if you have a suspicion that people really don't want to serve, and unless I mail them out a roster with their name highlighted five times, they're not going to show up. Um, that's a system built on suspicion. Whereas we've gone the other way and said, no, no, we, we want to care for your household and we trust you that you'll want to serve and see this church flourish. So we use Planning Centre Online. Some of you might use it. It's essentially an online rostering tool which results in, uh, so 10 days out from a Sunday service, people will get a request that you're on Bible reading or you're doing crash and things like that. And we say to people, if you, um, if you can't do it, just hit decline and we'll sort it out because it's centrally managed. Because um, my experience before going to a brilliant church that matured me a great deal is <coughs> you get the roster in the mail and you think, well, three weeks I can't do crash because we're going away. And so you text three people, two people don't ring you back, one person says, I don't know, and you think, well, am I supposed to ring you now or is that a no or a yes? Or, and there's just a lot of tension, a lot of energy going into kind of managing that. But also if the sound people and the don't know that the wife of that person's got depression and, um, and, and things like that, and it might not be the best thing to ask her husband to back up two weeks in a row on sound. Um, so, um, so we say we trust you, so just hit the client, we'll sort it out. And it's all kind of managed... Centrally, and I think what in effect that has done um, is it's helped. Like shift workers, for example, if you say you're on one month on, two months off, they say, "Well, I can't commit because I don't know I might be on hospital at the shift." Then we sort of say, "Well, you know, we'll just roster you on. If you can't do it, just hit decline. We sort it out. There's no skin off your nose. It's an app or an email or an SMS that uh, comes to you, and you can just do it in five seconds." Um, List of all the decline people comes up on the screen. Yeah, it does. But it also shows you all the um, other people that are happy to read the Bible and it shows you when they last served and all those kind of things. So very quickly, whether you're on your phone or something like that, you can send another request. And people know that if I get a request on Friday afternoon that requests went out eight days ago, something must have gone wrong and we sort of say, you know, if you can do it, that'd be great. If you can't, you know, (laughs) something to sort out. 
I got roundly mocked and ridiculed by all my colleagues that this would never work. <laughs> um, that um, you can't just put that, you know, if you give people a chance to decline, they're going to decline. I said, well, you're building a system on suspicion rather than uh, trust. And I, I'm amazed that people have really stepped up to it. So going to two services 18 months in, just come through the second church planning winter, the winter of discontent, um, that... Um, at the time, we all felt like a rest. We were sort of saying, we're going to two services. We need heaps of people to step up into kids and uh, music and things like that. And people with goodwill um, did it. And, um, yeah, and now, yeah, we've continued to go through those reorganising for a growth moments. And um, I'm amazed at the good heart with which, you know, Saturday night you think, oh, we've lost a drummer and the three people that are playing tomorrow really hate playing without a drummer. And so you send out a request and someone comes along and they say, oh, yeah, you know, it... I've been amazed. Like we just keep thinking, I need to look after the household. I'm not going to ask you by conviction because I don't think it's caring for you. I'm going to ask someone else, and, and God's been great. So, um, I reckon um, for us, I reckon we, I don't think we've had anyone leave the church due to burnout, and we've only had maybe two or three households leave, you know, just for a job or going to be with my child who's going to another church and at a home now or something. Uh, like n- none of that kind of stuff, which is a big part, I think, of why. The, the graph each year is bigger than the year before because the back door's essentially been closed. We've been welcoming well. And I think it allows newcomers as well, because you're given that freedom, there's all sorts of things you can do with newcomers on coffee and ushering and things like that. You're not putting them straight into kids or anything. But it allows people a chance to get used to the system that we trust you, we want to look after your household. So that 18 months in when you say we really need you know 30 more kids leaders, um, you think you know how it works, but we need to train you up in kids, and, and people have been uh, really great. So, I, just out of curiosity, does your Sunday school leaders change week to week? Would you put them on for a term at a time, or? Yeah, the um, the seventy percent of church runs on just getting a request ten days out. Uh, kids, we sort of say you're on one month on, two months off. Uh, but again, some people are happy to serve um, on kids more often than that because I think well I can keep coming to nine but I can serve I'm happy to serve two months on 10.30 because I still get to go to church and hear a sermon and, and things like that some some of our young adults are like yeah on my one month on just roster me on twice uh, I'll do both that day and go home and listen to the sermon online and there's all those different individual preferences and because Planning Centre Online can record those preferences you can see them pop up on screen you're short of a crash work and you see someone not prefer- it says not preferred that they don't really want to serve at 10.30 so you, you know if they're the only person to ask you then contact them and say well I know this is really not preferred but we're really stuck for tomorrow can you help them and, um, so it just in a very super efficient way allows you to really try and extend care to everyone and then we've given that main task to our key admin person who, you know, she, she pops all the things in and she can see who served over the last five weeks. She applies pastoral insight to that and then usually comes to the point where she might have three questions to ask and sort of say, well, I need a new sound person 10 days. It's not really ideal that person served three times. That person I know is struggling and, and things like that. And I get to put a little bit of pastoral thing in that she might not know and then she fills them in, send them out and uh, it goes so... I think that's a huge factor on why that graph looks like it does. Um, probably the biggest factor is keeping the back door closed and having the front door Matt, open. Yes, that, that sounds like something you could do with well-trained team leaders, not necessarily yeah, just one person. Yeah, but they wouldn't necessarily know. Team, the team leaders would have to communicate a lot and probably know a lot of 
pastoral stuff that might not be public that such and such has just had a miscarriage and, and things like that. So it could be done. I'm not saying it couldn't. So we're sitting here at 300 thinking, oh, I don't know if this system's going to work at 400. We might need to go to team leaders. So I'm not saying it's the only way to do it. And there'd be some really good ways. And PCA has some great functionality for using team leaders. Um, each way you would choose to do it would have some positives and some negatives. I think everything basically very briefly running past me and managed by one person allows that pastoral insight that probably only a pastor would know um, and that last minute thing. That's the plus side. Uh, the downside is it makes our admin job really stressful and difficult and um, it's not a, you never have the perfect roster field. You always want more people and things like that. So we, we keep saying it's not a problem that's ever going to be solved. It's just attention management. We want to look after you. We want you to come to multiply and be encouraged how you fit into the scheme of things and things like that. We really try and look after and value and pay our admin staff better than most admin people get paid and things like that because it's a key spot in our, in our church, which has served us well up until um, 300, um, but might not always. Um, and I'm sure you could go to another session and someone might tell you how brilliantly team managers have used PCA to do the same thing. But yeah, that's not my experience. All right, um, just uh, next point there, point six. Um, this was an interesting diagram a friend drew for me um, the other day. Uh, Deloitte um, did a worldwide survey of about 3,500 companies and looking what makes high-performing organisations. Um, and they, I don't know how they quantified it all. And I, I need to chase down the, um, the hard evidence of the report and you're probably going to buy it or something like that. But he drew it on a piece of paper and he, he sort of said, well, there's two aspects of what makes a, a uh, an organisation. So I should say this is not a ministry diagram. It doesn't describe per churches perfectly. I'm not trying to run a theological grid over it. I'm just <coughs> presenting what was done. But they sort of said in organisations there's the sort of the vision of what we do. We have Sunday services. We have community groups through the week. We run life for people investigating Jesus. We have strategies. We measure it. And there's a result that comes out of that for, for good or bad. Um, they also said... Um, each organisation, consciously or not, has its own culture. So uh, BHP, for example, uh, I know from good authority, has a really bad safety culture, which results in dams blowing up and um, uh, things like that. Uh, that's a culture. So you, you can try and say we take occupational health and safety seriously on the left-hand side of the chart, but then everyone just you know doesn't change into their work boots and walks around with their thongs on and does the same thing at home and they're mowing the lawn and things like that. It's a culture issue. Um, um, and I don't know how they deduced this, which is why I'm really looking forward to reading it, but they said of successful companies, about 60% of that is attributed to culture, and the person who sets the culture of an organisation is about half of that falls to the key leader, whether it's a CEO or a church pastor and things like that. And he said a lot of organisations are very unconscious about their culture and very clear on vision. And my friend who works for City Bible Forum said, a lot of churches, when I'm talking about what they're doing, they're all talking left-hand coach. Villian, this is what we're doing. We're going to two services. We're planning churches. We want to get 75% of people in home groups. It's all, it's all vision stuff. Right? So when you read the New Testament, it, it's not talking about that. It's all talking much more about who we are. We're, we're the people of God. God, you know, the church is, you know, in God's plan, the way of delivering the gospel, this great story of redemption. We're, you know, we're God's um, people chosen uh, to do that. We, what do we value? We, we love each other. We. Um, we, uh, you know, we value God speaking to us. We value sort of growing to maturity. We, um, uh, we value really caring for each other in hard times. We, we, you know, we want to 
we think loving our neighbours and actually getting to know non-Christians is a good thing, um, which then, of course, drives your behaviours, uh, which means that you might actually spend some time inviting a few neighbours around for a barbecue and getting to know them and their worldviews and things like that. You come to church and think, yes, we are the people of God. We're on about the gospel. We're, you know, that's all um, sort of culture stuff. We are welcoming because God's welcoming. We realise why we're here. And, um, if, um, and you know, that, that drives our behaviour. Everyone's unwelcoming on a Sunday because that's, you know, we realise how hard it is to get people to church. And the last thing we would want is for people to have a bad experience. when So we're all unwelcoming. We want to be the most welcoming church we possibly can be. That drives behaviours and actions and also... Uh, then results. Now, this is where you need to put the theological writer on it. Of course, God's sovereign and we're not in control of the results. But when you're thinking about your church, it's it's good to spend a bit of conscious time on the culture side and speak about it, and it will naturally fall out in your preaching uh, and things as well, um, because that's actually more determinative on whether you sort of grow and welcome people and share the gospel and things. Yes, I can see multiple hands up. Sorry, I'll just ask them. Sorry, I couldn't see Susie. the name. Susie, thanks. Um, is this kind of like aspirational culture or actual culture? So, so I yeah. wonder the person sitting in the pew going, oh, actually, no, that's not me. Like, yeah. I, I don't love newcomers. And, mm. uh, yeah. You know, I mean, that, and no, I don't value welcome. Yep. Do you know what I mean? So, so yeah. how, and particularly if you've got so many de-church people. Yes, absolutely. What does it look like to go, this is who we are? Yeah. And to not... The, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. At, at every time, I mean, the culture is what it is, whether it's sick or healthy or owned by everyone or, or not. Um, uh, so the culture I'm describing is aspirational, but also what I think actually falls out quite naturally in preaching to speak about uh, who we are. So you're trying to shape culture, and you would. Um, I think the, the, the someone drew me a diagram the other day. I don't have. I didn't even get me in. Um, Whiteboard <laughs> uh, marks. Any around? Yeah. Um, thank you. I think because it's a really good question because I think at each time, and you know, if you're an optimist pastor like me, you always probably think your culture is a bit better than what it really is, <laughs> and uh, things like that. But um, uh, the diagram someone drew for me the other day, and I can't remember who he stole it from. It looks a bit like a tennis ball. Um, he said, think something like evangelism, like evangelistic optimism and praying and thinking about your neighbours and things like that. You probably say there's 10% of the people in your church, you know, doing everything you'd love them to do in that area. You find them so encouraging evangelistically. You have another 10% over here. I'm just making these numbers up, by the way. Um, there's no science behind this. But people who just think, oh, you know, I come to church because I just want to hear a sermon. And, you know, they're really doing the exact opposite of what you want to do. But then in the middle, there's about... 80% of people who kind of think, well, I get evangelism is important. I don't, I don't do a lot, but I am actually concerned about my neighbours and friends, and I would, I'd love to kind of think about it some more and maybe change a few things in life uh, to kind of do it more. So, um, if you're trying to change culture, the um, I think probably the best way to do it is invest. You know, as people involved in ministry, whether it's a leadership team or community, <coughs> invest time in this 10% to get them to help you win the hearts of the 80% over to them because they're kind of up for grabs. Like if there's enough kind of grumpy, oh, evangelism again, um, people around, those people, you know, will slowly get dragged that way. Whereas if if you've got this culture winning and that suddenly becomes, you know, 20%, like I always think it's the, the dominant culture that wins. A bit like I said before, like people don't, I don't get emails complaining about, you know, I'm... I'm a middling preacher, but we don't have a culture of... I feel wonderfully loved and supported by our community and encouraged and things like that because we have a culture where that's normal. The people who come in like that just, you know, 
don't stick. Like we keep about 30% of our newcomers. Most churches keep about, if you keep 10%, you're a fast growing church. Most churches keep about 4%. Um, so we've still got 70% of people who come and check us out for a few weeks who don't stick. Um, but I reckon it's a lot of people who sort of think, oh, you know, this, this dominant, everyone's so, you know, welcoming. They want to talk to me. I just want to sit in church and be quiet and I don't like hearing sermons, you know, encouraging me to evangelism, you know, that kind of stuff. They, I, I think there'd be a percentage of those people just not sticking because it's kind of like the culture wars. You've, you've got it. You want the, you want the team you want winning, winning. And um, so I think it's really good to invest time and energy and resources into those people to say that you've got 20 people helping try and sharpen an evangelistic culture or a culture of turning around talking to people or, or things like that. So I think we nailed the welcoming culture. There's a huge percentage of people own and live that out. Evangelistic culture is much smaller but growing. <coughs> so there's always an element of aspiration. Sorry, yes. Someone says that a healthy church is the greatest evangelistic strategy. Yeah. And I've seen that in the in the focus on preaching rather about who we are, mm. and you know, really it's just basic stuff that's in the Gospels, mm. you know, sort of being the Christian person, yeah. um, while at the same time having, of course, you know, some of us have that obsession with vision sort of stuff, mm. rather than focusing down the vision things and the goals and the strategies, you know, yeah, have them, but actually the real driver is the other thing, it's the relationships, it's the the, um, the culture within the church. Mm. I love it. Yeah. yeah. So it's not saying don't do that. It's not saying don't do vision. It's just saying don't spend 100% of your time on vision and wonder why the culture is the way it is. You need to spend a good portion of your time thinking culture. So we took some time out from Geneva this morning as a staff team. You know, we're trying to plan another church and do things like that, but we could get stuck into the strategy. But I'm thinking, no, no, we've, we've really got, we've got three new people on the staff team. They need to live our culture that we trust each other we're for each other we pray we have open conversations about stuff we do kind of conflict well all for the sake of the gospel and you know kind of you know those culture things of who we are as a staff team which I think sort of spills over uh, and things as well so yes Bennett. very specific question um, I, I love the way that you you seem to have your metrics really locked down um, I, I know this is taking slightly off track but yeah, could you sure. just tell us exactly how and who, like, just describe your system for capturing the metrics of who's coming, yep. how you cl- classify them, categorise them, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so sure. So, what um, does the metrics mean? Oh, just, um, you know, how many newcomers you're getting a year, um, how many conversions, professions of faith, those kind of health, you know, how many people are in a community group, that's the kind of thing. Yeah, uh, stats. stats. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, so, uh, we. Uh, use Church Community Builder. A lot of people use Elvanto. I don't know Elvanto, but our network chose CCB, so I know <coughs> Church Community Builder, so I know about that. So um, we've tried to set a good system in place for because the first thing we sort of um, part of that Tim Sims talk I told changed my life. He sort of said he looked at Sydney Anglicans for a year and said, "Stop planning churches. What you're doing is just making everyone busy. God's bringing three or four hundred people to your existing church. Everyone's running around before the service doing stuff and not welcoming and things like that." He's a big supporter of church planning, but he was trying to make a point. He said, "Stop planning churches and start welcoming the people that are already coming uh, properly." Um, so I sort of thought, of course, we're still going to do evangelism and things like that. But in terms of a big picture concept of what we're going to try and nail in the first year is having a welcoming culture. So we wanted to track it. Um, so um, Church Community Builder does what's called process cues uh, really well. So we have a, you know, in the 
because we want to welcome well the leaflet on a Sunday, the biggest thing in the front says welcome. There's a little thing sticking out the top saying, hi, are you new here? Why don't you let us know you came? We stripped it right back. We're just after a phone number, an email and a name. And there's four boxes on the back they can tick. I'm going to find out more about Jesus. Tell me about community groups. I'm going to go on the email list or nothing for now, thanks. Just a welcome email. Um, and we have a spot in the service for people to fill that out. Because I come from a church where we had those cards. There was about 80 questions on there about what nationality you were and what country you were born, what language you speak at home. So about 5% of people used to fill them out. But there was no time in the service to do it. So we stripped it right back, put those things on there, and then designed a process queue around it so that when that card is filled in, so we get about 75% of our newcomers filling that card in. And um, um, so Monday morning, that gets put into church community building. We've got a process queue there that pops up on my screen and says... There's six people that you need to send a welcome email to. Two of them asked to find out more about Jesus. Two of them asked about community groups. They want to go on the email list. It's kind of automated down there. So I send them a welcome email. um, And then there's like a thing that pops up two weeks later. It's like a two-week review, which is nothing physical to it. It's just, oh, you know, have we seen Jack? You know, he popped up two weeks ago. You know, maybe I should give him a call. Or you find out that they've been invited over someone's house for lunch. You think, oh, they're fine for now. Um, And things like that. And then there's, you know, a welcome event. Have they been invited to the next one? If they've been invited, yes. Did they actually attend? Yes. Have they been, you know, they asked about community groups. Have they been asked? Yes. It's all tracked. Um, So at any point, you can say, well, we've, you know, we've sent out 167 welcome emails this year and, you know, eight people have asked to find out more about Jesus. Four of them expressed interest in coming along to Life Course. Two actually came. One became a Christian. It's all kind of tracked there, um, which is really... um, handy uh, so yes when you say that 75% of you people who, you, well, who visitors, you, yep. yeah, fill out the form yep. how do you know that someone else is counting to know that yeah yeah so we sit down at staff team each uh, Monday morning first thing right. mark the role yep. and we sort of say well um, here's all the people on our role who are there and there's another um, and we've got a head count so we know exactly how many people were there we've got four cards so down the bottom in a just a free form box we get an idea of how many people were at church that didn't fill out a card who we knew and you know some people just steadfastly refused to fill out those cards still of Fair course enough. so you know there's six weeks in we've seen them six weeks at church we still don't have their details we go right we declare a bounty um, <laughs> you, know, you actually get a bounty at staff menu if you get their details on a card that's um, just the fun thing uh, that we do to try and capture that because once they're in the system it's great to look back on or if a new pastor takes over the church you can think oh um, she first attended church you know back in 2015 Four week, you know, four, they can see the exact date she attended a life series, she became a Christian, she started in the serving process queue, and you get a whole history of what people um, have done, which is really handy for when it comes to stats. So, community groups, for example, as I said, we had about tight group, we had about 75% of people in groups when we started, you know, 18 months later, we had more people in groups, but it was down to 40% because it totally um, outstripped the. Man, I took you on a massive tangent. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, no, that's cool. He's done. Sorry, Marlon. That's right. Yeah, feel free. Good. So, sorry, the, the welcome card, you said it's really mm. simple. You, you flew through it really quick, but I didn't get my yes. Sorry. <laughs> so on the front, yep. um, it's just got a very relaxed, you know, hi, you new here, why don't you let us know you come, came, um, and then it's got asking for name, email, and phone number. Yep. And it says underneath, don't worry, we won't spam you. Um, you flip it over, um, it says, you know, respond. Um, you know, there's a free form area for people to write comments or yep. things like that. And then just the four boxes. The first one's, I want to find out more about Jesus. Um, two is, I want a, more information on community groups, which is our home groups, Bible yep. studies. Um, uh, please add me to the email list. 
or nothing for now, thanks, just a welcome email. So, and we respect that too. If someone says nothing for now, thanks, just a welcome email, they get one email from us. And we don't use that to kind of mine later on. But people say, I want to go on the email list. <laughs> yes, sorry, you had to hand up. Uh, when you were talking before about the culture of who we are, Bruce mm. um, Dibble from SMGC mm. book becomes a global. Yes, um, I've got that on my bookshelf. I haven't read it. <laughs> particularly highlights that. Mm. So he talks about um, particularly in the area of mission. Mm. So rather than seeing mission and, and uh, in terms of overseas mission, mm. rather than <coughs> being viewed as something that we do, yeah. mission is core to who we are. Mm. And when you Absolutely. view it as core to who we are, we then see the natural connection between local mission and overseas mission, mm. between mission within close cultures to us and mission to people of a distant culture. Yeah. And um, whether you use um, uh, Rick Warren's, you know, five, sorry, five purposes, which could yeah. also be viewed as as, as five cores of who we are. Yeah. You know, there's there's different aspects to be to be drawn upon. So yeah. again, coming back to that whole idea of if it's just things to, to of who we are, mm. great way of exhausting people as well. Um, because that's just a task that I've got to do. Mm. Whereas if it's a natural expression of I love Jesus and I want mm. to share that message with others, yep. um, it comes about from a different direction as well. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, yep, I agree with that. And one of the things I think is really great that seeing that we are three sort of formerly supported missionary households in terms of global mission um, through CMS, the, the, all the new sort of missionaries coming through are, are very focused on, yeah, we're off serving Jesus in another country. Um, um, but one of our main roles is educating your community that we're all on mission together and this is just one expression of our great call to go and make disciples of all nations. Kind of thing. One of many which is the kind of the who we are kind of thing. And I find the, the current crop of CMS Mission is just brilliant at articulating that in just a different way because you can say the same thing the same way all the time. It, it can get a bit exhausting even if it's great and theologically correct. Nice to kind of hit it from different angles. Yeah, for sure. All right, yes. So yes. Uh, you may have mentioned actually, mm. but is this, do you have like book titles for that point six in terms of. No, I want to chase like it down. Diagnosing mm. current culture and mm. wanting to uh, existing culture. Um, <laughs> no, I don't. Um, I'm just trying to think of some good. I, uh, when I'm kind of looking for something, on that, I tend to go to the Dave Craft website. If you don't know Dave Craft, he wrote Mistakes Leaders Make, Leaders Who Last. He essentially worked for Pioneers for a few decades, then went into um, ministry coaching, and now sort of retired and coaching pastors and things like that. He's done us a great service by um, reading all the books on leadership and culture and things like that, summarising the gold out of it, and sort of saying most pastors won't be able to read these 80 books, but here's the gold from them. And then if you like a book, you then... Uh, I am... Um, uh, uh, I have a management degree um, background um, and I used to analyse big companies for the bank and see whether we lend them $200 million we're gonna, while we think we're going to get it back. Um, a lot of that is really analysing the culture and the ability of an organisation to deliver a plan. So I, I, I kind of naturally think that way. I tend to find that most people who sort of speak that management language about church, I have some concerns about their theology. Um, but I still find their insults from a management perspective really helpful. So there's not a lot of really super evangelical people who can also speak structure and strategy well. I mean, Hurdy's one exception who seems to do both uh, really well. But um, So I, uh, Patrick Lencioni, I, I, The Advantage, I think, is just a great book on um, sort of staff team culture and, and things like that. We use that to sort of set the culture of our staff team to try and set the culture of uh, the church. 
And when we were doing some culture stuff this morning with the staff team, skipping the first two um, sessions today, um, we listened to an Andy Stanley leadership podcast. Who uh, I've got some grave concerns on Andy's um, theology of preaching, and you know, if you preach through whole books of the Bible, but it might be good? might be Come great. On. Yeah, he's good. I listen. Time. I listen to him all the time. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, so I'm I'm trying not to kind of. <laughs> but his management insights on this whole culture thing are, are brilliant. This is an Andy, Stanley Andy Stanley leadership podcast, but don't read his books on. Um, yeah, don't read his books. <laughs> so, um, what happens? He's when, really good on culture. I love, I love his stuff. What happens in the gap? So, the aspirational thing's one thing, but I've yep. heard aspirational used as an excuse for not, you know, and I've been involved in a situation, mm. you know, one of our. You know, someone's slugline is we resolve conflict, but they patently don't. So, mm. what, what's the conflict? What's the situation <laughs> when the gap between your language mm. and your reality is so wide? That's going to cause yep. a, a cognitive dissonance in you. Yep. But people are going <laughs> to see it. Despair. Yeah, despair yeah. generally. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, how do, have you had situations where you've had to think we've got to work really hard? We're not going to change our language to drop. Mm. We're going to move our language, uh, move our practice up close to our language. Is that yeah. Good? We used to talk in, when I worked for ANZ, we used to talk about perception gaps all the time because people have a perception of the service they're going to get from a bank and then there's a reality. So if you have a perception of pretty rubbish service and you get great service, it's a very positive experience with that organisation. If it's the other way around, of course, you know, logic flows. My flight from uh, Perth on the quantity. Yeah, yeah, that's right. If you're expecting good service <laughs> and you receive really bad. So um, we talked a lot about trying to you know, tighten the perception gap. So if our service is really great in an area, we really want to tell people um, that it's great. Um, so that closes the perception gap that way. If we have a, you know, you're going to fly with Qantas, it's going to be the best thing ever, and songs and, um, you know, great food and things like that, and your reality is very different. You, you, you just can't keep selling that it's the greatest airline in the world when it's when it's not. You yeah. just wanted the wheels to come back. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm not asking too much. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So I... I often um, sort of think, both on an individual level, for uh, sorry, households, I think in households as a unit by general, but um, also as a church, like what's the next step for these people? So at any given point, if you're thinking just of a household, they're going to be on some spectrum from, you know, not Christian to say I'm Christian but I'm not, to converted, new Christian, the church, all the way through to like really mature people in Christ. And you sort of think, well, I can't move that person from there to there in one year and it's not within my capability to do so anyway, but I'm going to pray to Jesus and ask him to help them move the right way down that spectrum at some point this year. And there's all sorts of different ways that we have to reach all sorts of different people because you can run the most brilliant university, theologically tight Bible studies every Wednesday night that only really preach to the converted <laughs> Um, that top 10% and wonder why the other 90% aren't in groups and because they're not, they're not growing. So we intentionally have some groups that have a, a higher, they all have Bible and prayer, but some groups have a 30-minute Bible study, some groups have a 90-minute, and we kind of target people in. Some have more of a... So we have some groups that have sort of a 30-minute Bible study, they always have dinner, and they've actually got you know a number of non-Christian target people to actually invite along uh, to those groups. And then... There's people down the other end of the spectrum who think, oh, you know, I've got all the friends in the world. I, you know, I get all this. And I'm, I'm just busy with grandkids and all this kind of stuff. I just want to go to a Bible study that finishes on time. That's just a Bible study, um, and um, we try and deliver something for them as well. And so it's trying to sort of minister to people in, in different ways. So then, when you think to a, um, uh, so one thing I 
we're really trying to work on in Adelaide, and I don't really know what we're doing, but we're trying to make steps down to being an evangelistically sharp culture where, by that I mean that people are praying and interacting, we're making real connections with people in the community, getting to share the gospel with some. Of course, some will think it's ridiculous and walk away. Some will make professions of faith and fall away, but some will um, become mature disciples of Jesus. Um, that, um, But that's owned broadly by our community. And, you know, It's not just the 10% of, uh, of people doing it. Um, I try and be realistic and sort of say, well, uh, so in a sermon last year, I sort of said, well, one marker of that, I, I would love to see it, and, and um, I've heard because I heard a talk from Hedy on it. So sort of said it took us seven years to build an evangelistic, sharp enough culture where we saw, a, on average, a conversion a week. It took seven years to kind of get there. Um, and said, another few years on, they're seeing about three a week now. So it's 150 converts a year, and it's not just someone who says, "Oh, I think Jesus is okay." That's someone who's been along to a life course, made a profession of faith, and joined a Bible study group. So 150 people. That seems like Mount Everest compared to where we're sitting at the moment. Um, uh, so, sort of, um, and it's, you know, because of God's sovereignty, there's no, we're not in control of that situation either. But I keep sort of saying, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great if it was just a normal thing to see a convert a week here? And you know, I, I have, I have no magic recipe of how to get there, or um, you know, I'm not, we're, we're not necessarily in control of it. But you know, do you think Jesus would? love it if we prayed to him that he asking him to use us to do that uh, yeah absolutely so you know let's be praying for it and sort of say well you know here we are we've said we're walking to Everest and we've made it just to Port Augusta which is not a very nice town in South Australia it's <laughs> about 3% of the way to Mount Everest um, so say you know we, we've taken some steps down the road like so we're you know in terms of trying to um, in terms of because another thing that happens a couple of going way off next year but another thing that happens um <laughs> Does it help the fact that you've gone the wrong direction? And you said to Port Augusta. That's going to oh, from Adelaide. No, Port Augusta's north of Adelaide towards Everest. <laughs> so, yeah, the... Um, uh, oh, what was I going to say? The, um, <laughs> someone give me a refresher. <laughs> you're going away if you notice. Yeah, go away. Oh, yeah, that's, that's where we were. Thank you. Um, the... <laughs> the um, uh, after... When you plant a church, people... Uh, and because... We were really blessed with a very sort of highly motivated group. They're like, this is great. I've got a church that's just down the road. I can invite those three neighbours. I've been reading the Bible with this person for six months. I've been praying for that person at school for seven years and they never come along to anything. There's kind of um, connections there. After two years or something, um, everyone's exhausted those connections. You've either asked them eight times to come along to church and they steadfastly refuse or life or they've come along once and thought this is not for me or they've come along and they've become converted which is great um, but those relationship connections are exhausted so if you keep saying evangelism is important you keep getting to know people and you apply it individually um, you can really just walk away and people feel very beat up and they sort of think oh, I'm busy I'm trying to manage the kids you know mum's sick um, and people can feel very I know it's important I get it I love Jesus and I'd love to do a better job but I just don't know how we, I tend to try and apply sermons as much as possible in a corporate way. So, so so let's get to know and love as many people as we can in our local community. So let's do a curry night 
we'll all donate a pot of curry and we'll invite everyone for the community long we'll just charge them like two dollars to help cover the consumables so it doesn't blow the church budget and you've all donated the curries but we'll pray and we'll invite people along we'll have it in the hall where we have church on a sunday it'll be a stepping stone for you to say oh well, this is my church community this is where we meet on a, mm. on a sunday it's, it's nothing big or rocket science the first one we did we had about 120 people along and about five visitors we sort of said oh well it's a nice you know meal together and things like that next time we had about 160 people along about 30 were visitors Next time was 220 and we had about 60 visitors. Last time we did was about 310 and we had about 120 visitors from the community. That's their first experience. And we timed them kind of before Easter or before Christmas or something like that. And you have the postcard out on the table and I'm, a, I'm on the committee at the RSL now. Again, because it's a great way to get to know uh, the community and I do their Remembrance Day and dawn services and we all serve them and do free coffee because again it's part of who we are we wanted to get to know people corporately together and even kind of the shy mice who you know would you know just perish at the thought of sharing the gospel with someone and think oh well I can come along and hand out leaflets at dawn service or I can cook a curry mm. so you're saying together we're getting to know people and you're celebrating the fact uh, that people you are coming along because like, mm. a lot of our traditions are the sermon is a de- discrete Mm. part of the service where I, yep. you know the last few years especially we're going you weave your cultural narrative into your sermon not clunkily but yep. it's got to be woven into it doesn't yeah. it because it, to just make it discreet means you don't have the opportunity to normally say and this is what we are as an evangelistic church mm. yeah, yeah. Well, i think um yeah we have a well when we did deuteronomy we did it through um there's a great guy I got recommended by one of the old testament <coughs> lecturers at college who said oh he's seen it through the you know the hermeneutic of mission of, you know mission of god and so we preach generally that way now we don't do it with everything um, but there's a fair component of evangelistic stuff that kind of naturally falls out of scripture it's pretty hard not to be out of one the gospel in there uh, somehow but a- applying it corporately where you can but there's always the hesitation that you, you, the last thing you want to be is the preacher who just twist every passage to say what they wanted to say so you've got to wait for your genuine opportunities to apply it in the way that you might like um, and I keep that sort of separate I commit to teaching books of the Bible before I refresh myself with them you know doing one Timothy straight after the first Easter is challenging um, the, um, so um, I think there's other ways to communicate those so you know, the leaflet letter on the back of the leaflet always write something. There's a number of points in the year where you just kind of write to everyone and say, thank you, here's what we're talking about. Leave a little blank spot, just write a little personal note. You know, it takes a few hours. And, I mean, you mail merge it all and you just write a personal note on things like that. It's a way to communicate. You have a vision and budget document that you keep reinforcing that, you know, we plant churches, that God willing will plant more healthy disciple-making churches. You have, you kind of stamp that on as many documents as you can and, and websites and things so it's like a you have to have multiple hits on anything to kind of you can't just say something once um, so I try and use all those different modes of communication as wisely as possible not to oversell it but just to, to make it clear but you in newcomers nights you can get it across but the other thing too is um, for the first three years we just cherry uh, for our Bible study group we sort of cherry picked 12 kind of people that we thought these are great I think these are really people worth investing in. Um, I had them for the whole year, and by the end of the year, they live and breathe the vision that you have uh, as a church. They know you, they trust you. They're often the highest kind of people who jump in at the last minute to rescue you when you don't have a drummer and, um, and things like that. But then three years on, you've got you know forty people at your church who all kind of know that in a different uh, kind of way and uh, live it and breathe it. Um, 
which is really helpful when then you have a group of 20% of people trying to kind of win the culture uh, wars and who we are and things. Yes? Just going back to your evangelism mm. stuff, so uh, just listening to your language that you're using mm. and comparing it to which I think I've used and yeah. maybe often here, yeah. often evangelism, I think, is presented as either corporate or relational. Yep. Um, and just the language you're using is it's corporately relational. Yeah, I think so. We can yeah. help each other do that because, you know, one of the things I noticed at uh, our previous church, again, wonderful church, you do a, like a, a Sunday and say, this is a you know, really good Sunday to invite your non-Christian friends along. And then half the regulars would take the, the day off. <laughs> and the people who did bring their um, friends along didn't have their mates to kind of introduce them to and things like that. And it was kind of a, an issue of a, kind of a, a cultural um, problem. Um, so, yeah, we, we want to sort of be helpful to each other in that. So, you know, even if you can't, you invite five people along to carry night and you can't come, like, you know, be the person who walks up and, you know, spots new people and sit down and have a chat so that the person who brought them can move around the room and they can get some, uh, other people and things like that. So it's a corporate application of a, a different thing. Another a quick diagram that uh, I'll find something a bit later. The, um, in, again, in ANZ, we used to have uh, what we called the funnel. It was a sales funnel. Um, and to really don't want to compare evangelism to sales <laughs> that way. But um, when we had our first discussion with a customer like, you know, Cooper's Brewery or something that want to borrow 200 million for a share buyback or something like that. If you have a first discussion, you put a little dot in there and you put Cooper's, you know, 200 million. Um, the next stage is like a more serious go back. We'd like your business. You know, how can we sort this out and structure it? That's, you know, that that sort of moves down. Um, you then get to this point where you formally, you know, you've got credit assessed, the bank is happy, you put it in a document um, that you've delivered it. To Coopers and said we want to fund this 200 million, and then Coopers go, oh that's a really good deal. I can't be bothered changing banks. Uh, I'm just going to show this to ComBank and get them to match it, and then I've got the win and you haven't got a customer. So Coopers then suddenly <laughs> <laughs> disappears out the funnel there. So the point that is a funnel is that you're going to lose a lot of people on the way through, but if you ever want any new deals to come out of the bottom. You've got to have a lot of activity mm -hmm. up the top. Um, so, you know, you're always you're celebrating the fact that there's a lot of activity up here. So in, I've always wanted to be very wary, especially off the cuff in taking management stuff and applying it to evangelism. Um, but I reckon if you, were to, if you were to try and populate this funnel diagram with kind of Christian-appropriate terms, you sort of think people have to, to hear the gospel, they have to know a Christian, for starters. And... and um, and they kind of have to like them to the point where you get to the point where you can talk about stuff. So, so that's uh, up there. Then I reckon they need to have some experience of Christian community, whether that's coming along on a Sunday or coming to a carry night or seeing you up the front at Anzac Day and all the church people serving. And, you know, it, it kind of it's a bit of a blurred line there, but they have to have some positive experience. The next big one is people realising that you've got something that you want them to know. Because a lot of people stop right here and think, you're a Christian, isn't that wonderful? Yeah, I think you're the most wonderful person. You're always there for me when I ring up and I'm in tears about um, whatever. But, you know, it's good for you, but um, what's it got to do with me? Like, it's a huge um, block to help uh, people and to personally get to the point to say to people, like, actually, this is not just a, a fun thing I do to experience community. Like, I've actually got something really urgent that I'd really 
think you need to know and it actually affects your family and, I, and of course I want to tell you because I, I love you and you're a, a, a good friend and um, <coughs> you know please let me just tell you um, you know the gospel um, and or you know invite you along to course where you can hear the gospel or something like that so once people have an idea once it's clicked in their mind that I there's a Christian I know and I like them and they have something that they think I really need to know they can then choose whether to um, investigate further or not and once they've heard the gospel um, you know, people will drop out and say, that's, that's ridiculous, that's rubbish. Um, how could there be a God who lets whatever? Some people will then make a profession of faith. I reckon this bottom one here, is, it's still in the funnel, I reckon, the profession of faith, you know, parable of the soul. Some people receive the gospel with great kind of joy, but they don't sort of persevere onto maturity. So the point being, um, if you want to have converts coming out the bottom here, there needs to be an awful lot of activity at the top here and getting to know people. And if we can do that corporately through curry nights, you know, through the RSL where we are, through running a, you know, a guys' night on something, or you know, but also we sort of said we don't want it to be all stuff that's organised by the church as well. So what, one thing we did to try and sharpen evangelistic cultures to have missional prayer groups. We sort of we'd run them demographically, so young families, you know, would just get together and just think about some things that you might, small things you might be able to do. So families would go well. We take our kids riding the bike at the local school at three o'clock on a Sunday. We noticed you there a few times. Like, how about we both um, pray for a few families at school and invite them along because we know they kids like riding bikes and we'll try to get to know them and have dinner and love them and form a genuine relationship, you know, and with the hopes and we're we'll praying that we can share the gospel. So, nothing at all organised by church, but you need a culture to kind of drive those kind of behaviours um, for starters. Because um, if you're focused on okay life you invite all your people along and we'll evangelise them kind of thing. That's a left-hand side. I'm, I'm a big supporter of evangelistic courses, by the way. But if you've got a culture, that's kind of the icing on the cake if you can actually bring someone along and they like the evangelistic course and feel confident bringing their friends along. But it's that um, culture stuff. So we keep talking corporately about how we can do this together um, and then sort of next steps and encouraging people, you know, train 70 people in one-to-one Bible reading so that when... You know, people get to the point where they've, oh, yeah, okay, well, I know there's something you want me to know, I want to investigate it, and I don't want to go along to your life course because that sounds a bit weird, but I will catch up with someone and read the Bible over a coffee. Um, that you, you've got that. And then you sort of celebrate the fact we're all different, and, you know, not everyone is going to be doing this, but you can all be part of this whole evangelistic culture in some way, whether you're cooking curries, praying, giving, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I should have a look at the time. 5.30. 5.30. It's 5.50. Should we, um, we could stop there and pray if you like and then we can have more, um, any informal chats after. I think it's 20 minutes to a dinner. But we'll, um, we'll, um, yeah, 10 till the official finish. Okay. All right. Um, I'll just... <coughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Speak slowly. So with all that, we... Um, just, to, just to run you through quickly and we can talk over dinner or afterwards... Um, we um, try and, as a church, have a big focus on organisational health um, in terms of... Um, now, I'm not talking sort of church health, people in Bible studies at that point. It's more kind of the culture of the place that we always... that it's fine if I see something that I think could be done better, it's actually fine to talk to the pastor about that and we want to embrace that, that we really should crowdfund a new kids' gate so the kids stop getting off the road and, um, you know, things like that. Um, and that, you know, because if you've ever read, read uh, Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of Team, I think it's a brilliant book, I really like it. He sort of says most 
organisations, they're afraid of um, sort of conflict for starters, so they never really talk about things and then you kind of half agree to a goal and then when it forces you to actually do something about it, you think, I never really like that goal anyway and then you don't pay any attention to results. And it, it's, it, That's five dysfunctions of team in a, in a, in a nutshell. Is that Christians are particularly prone to it because we think, oh, conflict, that's, you know, we can't do conflict, we're Christians, we're far too nice uh, to do that. So we actually encourage on our staff team and things to sort of say, and it's not like we have stand-up arguments about things. It's more, you know, the six people sitting in the room saying, we should all do this, and there's one person thinking, oh, this is a really bad idea. I don't, you know, actually having the courage to sort of speak up about that and have the real conversations, you know, so having one of our trainees walk into the room and go, oh, I, I'm really just aware that that was probably one of the worst sermons I've preached, and I'm really sorry, and I want to do better. And, you know, you know having the kind of courage to have the real sort of discussions uh, about things. Um, so we, we focus on a lot of that on culture, which is part of what we were doing this morning. But yes, Susan, um, rescue, yeah, so just rescue me. Practical, um, <laughs> concrete things that you do to build trust in your team. Yes, so um, concrete today, we took two sessions off and actually listened to a few uh, things like that. And it's just sort of spending time uh, together and sort of saying, well, we actually want to, we actually want to work on this. And I was amazed the first time we ran through it. I bought the advantage from Patrick Lanciani for everyone. We read it before our first staff away, and I was just amazed the first time we sat down in the room. People really kind of opened up and mm. shared about things that you know actually shape who they are. That happened 20 years ago, and you know, hence I have a need for approval, and I think that drives some bad behaviours in me, and you know, and things like that. I was just kind of blown away, and then you went away together. Yeah, we just went away for couple of days just down to the local beachside town near Adelaide and um, so it's kind of putting it out there so I, I think the five dysfunctions of team book is a brilliant one to kind of read to get you thinking about all those um, kind of things and then it's sort of a case of implementing it and sort of encouraging um, you know when there is a kind of conversation it does kind of get a bit tense to say well you know, you've kind of always got to coach people along and say isn't it good that we didn't let this bubble away underneath the, and things like that. So it's in, in, kind of encouraging those behaviours and then sort of thinking, well, you know, it's because we're not in control, we would love to see a convert every week. Um, and we're going to talk about the real reasons why we think that is or isn't happening. Uh, we still will be kind of focused on results in a God-appropriate way, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Not, not to beat ourselves up, but um, because we trust each other, we can talk about the real issues. Uh, disagree and commit is another big one. We don't try and get consensus on everything because Christians trying to get consensus, seven Christians in a room trying to get consensus on something can just be hugely time wasting. We sort of think, well, if we're safe, you know, if we're safe enough to actually have the real conversation, I feel like I've been heard. And six people are saying we should do this, and I don't think so. We sort of say, well, we're all adults. We're going to disagree and commit. So then publicly, um, you know. If it goes wrong and that one person was right, that one person, we know it's a cultural expectation of our staff team that the one person won't go, well, I always thought this was a bit of a dumb idea. And, you know, we were actually um, sort of uh, committed together to those. What does your kind of one-on-one time with staff members look like? Uh, I always try and spend uh, at least an hour just one-on-one with our trainees each week, our ministry apprentices. Um, uh, I mean, we spend a lot of time together, but it's just a step away from everything you're doing. Go and have a coffee, uh, chat and talk about things and you know, pray and sort of share some of the things that are really kind of worrying me and helping sort of troubleshoot it together and things like that. At you know, the start of the year, I took all the staff out to lunch separately and, um, yeah, just talked to... You know, we have a staff sort of review time. We have a... I, again, I found, you know, performance... You know, 
started off sole operator and suddenly had a staff team of seven and I'm supposed to do performance reviews and things like that. I looked and I thought, well, the management ones have some wildly inappropriate things for the Christian context in it and the Christian ones are so wishy-washy that they're almost useless. Um, so we kind of came up um, with our own and we sort of sit and talk about those things. You know, are there any things affecting your... It's part of our review process to talk about is there anything in your personal life affecting your ministry, whether it's finances or trouble at home and things like that. You know, how's, you know, are there things in your job that you'd love to do but you can't do because of the way it's structured? Um, are there things that you would like to hand off because you really don't like doing them in your job? Um, there's a whole... So there's a formal aspect as well as a sort of relational aspect and then trying to get the whole... We tried to get all the staff... Well, only one of our staff members couldn't make this conference um, because... Um, yeah, he's getting married and um, trying to finish oh, Bible studies. Or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but we sort of think, you know, we, we do this as our one year, once a year sort of time away and we try and wrap as much kind of fun around it together. So we flew in Sunday night, we're staying down at Surface Paradise, we decided to stay down there so we could talk about the conference for an hour there and on the mm. way back in the car, so we got an eight-seater and I went to SeaWorld yesterday together before we <laughs> came in. Like, we paid for that out of our own money. We didn't charge it off, charge it off to the church. But, um, yeah, we try and sort of have We've fun. We've got a line item called dolphins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah like we all got up this morning, went for a swim at Service Paradise. Isn't this great? We skipped the first couple of sessions and did some team stuff together on culture and now we're here and doing things and really looking forward to the talk tonight. And we'll talk about it in the car on the way home and just really trying to... And it's, it's great. I think you could, if you see anyone from Inner South, Trinity Inner South, I think I'm very confident that you could ask them and they, they would all think this is just a great team to work on. I love our team and I know I'm loved and, and, and trusted mm. and respected. And, Matt, and, yeah. that, something that I found helpful, ties in everything you said, yep. but it's just a picture in my mind. And it was like a line and then you've got a small circle and a bigger circle and a larger circle sort of yep, one, two, next three. to each other. Yep. Uh, in thinking about how to deal with you know, a safe place to have uh, conflict and mm. all that lanty stuff. Mm. So I moved into a church that was very old school and mm. many years of bad ex- uh, relating. Mm. And so creating the cult, how do you change your culture in a church that's old and whatever, yeah. and you're younger than anyone else. So yeah. it's added thing. I realised that I set the culture in the, in the, what you call it, team menu, elders yeah. menu, or whatever you might want to call it. Mm. And part of that was celebrating and, uh, and allowing people to actually say, I disagree, and I don't like your idea at all, mm. something sucks. Yeah. But to be able to say that with the freedom to say that in that meeting and allow anyone to, yeah, okay, well, thank you, what about everybody else? Everybody got the opportunity to do that. So you set the culture, and often you're the sacrificial lamb because you're the guy driving stuff. Yeah. So you actually have the greatest opportunity to set a culture with those people because they're, they're the, you're the, it's your idea most likely that's going to get smashed by someone. Yeah. Or, or not yeah. like. So, so you can actually set the culture and saying, it's actually safe to say this to me. You know, yeah. I don't want to hear this now. Yeah. So, you know, we might even change it or not do it. Yeah. That, then that group sets the culture of the next group. And in our system, mm. it's a, because we're Presbyterian, we've got certain structures. Yeah. And then the, the, that group of people sets the culture of the whole mm. church. So by just simply actually behaving well in that, creating, allowing safe conflict in that little yep. secret meeting, maybe the elders or something, yep. uh, has a massive in- influence <coughs> over time to help the church. Yeah, absolutely. I think of the concentric circles as well. So I think staff team, leadership team, and so that community group leaders, if, if you've got them kind of one on an idea and that might be 30% or 20% of your <coughs> community 
and you walk in and pitch, we're going to plant a church next October 2018 and things like that, even though they're just 20% of your community, they're the, they're the influences and, you know, you've, you've, you've already won the idea of those people are kind of on board uh, with it. So, yeah, and, and hats off to coming into an established culture and trying to change it because it is part of it. Question about how do you, how do you, you know, build trust and it ties into the health of church. How do you... Yep. Because healthy church is more about, it's not just about, let's all be evangelistic, let's mm. all be disciple makers, you know, mm. sat under Colin Marshall before. Yep. It's actually about how do we, how do we live in love? Yeah. How do we live out the gospel? Yeah. And if you can't do that in a little meeting where it's secret and people can be honest with one another about mm. what's going on, well, then it's never going to happen across the church. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly. There's something intuitively easier about church planning because you start with a blank sheet of paper and you get a much better run of setting that as opposed to changing it so I always take my hat off to people doing hard work changing cultures that might not be healthy so I don't think church planting is the pinnacle of ministry I actually think taking on the established church through preaching the word and prayer and all those kind of things changing it is a wonderful thing alright I might um, close in prayer and we can have uh, 10 minutes before um, dinner. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we um, we just thank you so much for uh, the opportunity uh, that we all have, that our families and, and churches and others have set us aside and uh, freed up the time for us to come to conferences like this. We um, thank you for the great sense of uh, unity that we have at Geneva Push and that, um, that things like church planning don't have to be endlessly justified or having tight doctrinal statements and things like that. Um, uh, but we can actually just come together and and uh, take all that as a given and, and talk about um, many of the, the practicalities of um, ministry and, and share the challenges and, and weep with those who are finding it really hard and support and encourage them and, and rejoice with those uh, for whom uh, you have enabled us to, to see fruit uh, from our ministries. We pray that in everything we do that we wouldn't ever take any of um, the glory that is due to you and, and bring it upon ourselves and uh, that we keep uh, willingly submitting and, and loving to submit to Jesus as chief shepherd of our churches and, and safe in that knowledge that we have just the freedom to speak openly about uh, some of the very practical or management matters or you know applying management wisdom and things uh, into the church um, for the sake of the church and for the sake of the mission that you've given us. So please help us never to get that um, all those things around the wrong way. Please help us to keep seeking your leading. Please keep helping us entrust our communities uh, to Jesus and, and keep asking um, uh, for you to enable us uh, by the power of your spirit to, to walk faithfully in the good works that you have prepared for us to do that bring glory and honour uh, to your name. And we ask this in Jesus' uh, precious name. Amen. Amen. Amen.